Stay hungry, stay foolish. Over half of the largest economies in the world are now global businesses controlled by the few while impacting the many. Business clearly has the power to change the world. But what if we as individuals had the power to change the world of business? We are in the age of the entrepreneur, where mavericks and rebels bring their entrepreneurial prowess to big business, to change it from the inside out and the bottom up. The entrepreneur is a story of one man's dream to do exactly that and how you can too. For over a decade, Gib Bullock led a team within one of the world's largest global consulting organizations, a corporate guerrilla movement working deep within the system to try to change the system. Against all odds, he created a not-for-profit inside one of the most profit-driven corporations in the world. Plaudits and promotions followed, but success came at a price. It ultimately cost him his job, his health, and perhaps even his sanity, as he found himself the unlikely resident of a psychiatric hospital. Welcome to the show, entrepreneur Gib Bullock. Thanks very much indeed. Delighted to be here uh, on the show. And I can't wait to read my own book now after that great introduction. It's great to have you on the show. Man. I, f- I feel like I know you because this is not a business book. This is a vision for how to change business book. And before we go there, Gib, it'd be great to get a context of who you are and the journey you went through up until you decided to launch this fabulous initiative within Accenture. People will maybe recognize the voice as a Scottish accent. We've got an Irish accent and a Scottish accent on this. Hopefully it's uh, audible. I grew up on Isle of Butte in the west coast of Scotland and the beginnings of the book are about what shapes you really in terms of the upbringing, that community, some of the the unsung heroes that that, uh, I came across. But I followed a very traditional path. I did what I was meant to do, worked at university, became an engineer because that's what someone said I had the grades for, uh, and sort of slept, walked into the rat race, if you will, the the big corporate world and was having all the sort of trappings of success in the big corporate world, all the things that we were meant to do to be successful, to be happy, to be fulfilled, but something was was missing. And I guess that's where the rest of the story kicks in. It's funny when I was I was saying to you off air, it's a very personal book and it's refreshingly vulnerable. You're not putting the best foot forward. And, and it's one of the things we almost criticize within the book as well, where people always have to wear this mask in society. They feel they have to, to survive. And you remove that mask totally within the book. Yeah, no, I certainly do. Maybe overly so, but to my mind, Aidan, you know, that the world doesn't need another one of these business books or, or, you know, here's my story to success and all the rest of it. It needs, I think, a story, uh, an authentic story, a vulnerable story that people can perhaps relate to and maybe even some get some ideas or be inspired by. You mentioned there your upbringing and it's almost like a script for a movie, these turn to camera moments within the book where you tell the reader something. And one of them is that you had this little argument with your editor over, should you leave in certain parts or not? And those parts you left in really resonated with me because one of them was, it was almost the formation of your entrepreneurial mindset or your anti-conformity mindset. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the idea from that came from a friend, actually, a bit of sort of house of cards kind of turn to camera uh, stuff, which is quite good fun just to step out of the, the narrative for a bit. And I think the one you're referring to is around an episode. Uh, I got a 
job in a little ironmongers locally on this island. And that was really what my boss called the university of life. That was the, the upbringing where these characters would come into the shop or I was repairing lawnmowers and things. But the, the, the episode was the, the kind of chutzpah of this charismatic boss of the shop deciding to enter uh, the Highland Games as a team. It was normally a, a kind of inter-sports team thing, the rugby team playing against the shinty team and the football team. But we entered as a shop. And, well, what happens, happens. But it was just that kind of mischievous, slightly challenging, slightly being creative, slightly bending the rules, breaking the rules, being successful against the odds. And just, yeah, that joie de vivre that you get when, when things like that come off. And it kind of shows the formulation of that mindset, the disruptive mindset, the David versus Goliath type approach that you've had all through your business career. <laughs> yeah, some, would, some would call it a pain in the ass in some way or a, a stubborn or, or whatever, which are, are no doubt the traits of what will be successful um, uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, to be a change maker, you have to be probably partly a troublemaker at the same time. Uh, not for the sake of it, but to not take accepted, receive wisdom for granted, the rules for granted. If you're wanting to change things and innovate, then today's policies, today's ways of doing things need to be done differently, need to be challenged. And it's difficult. And you'll come up against people that will think differently, act differently, compliance teams that want you to behave differently. But if you believe you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, then it can be quite a fun journey. And that mindset of challenging, I mean, the world doesn't progress without people who challenge the status quo and think differently. And I used to be quite anti-business and, and I read this book and you say that this is not an anti-business book, it's an anti-business as usual book because you're challenging the way business is done because it was probably right for the time it, it was born into, but the world has changed dramatically since then. Yeah, totally. Business has become quite ex obsessed about diversity and, um, and rightly so, you know, getting people that look differently, gender parity in workforces, racial parity, uh, sexual orientation parity. But the bit of diversity that I think has been neglected is around people that think differently. So I see this as something of a diversity issue. And it's, it's intriguing in the lead up to doing this um, show with you. I, I looked back at your shows and I saw that you had on uh, the author of uh, Excellent Sheep, uh, William, struggled to do his second name, Derizovich, I think. That's right. Uh, nice, nice really, pronounced, man. No, I read the book and it's fantastic. And I, I won't go into the detail on that, but it, he's kind of coming at the education system saying we're creating people, these homogenous people who are groomed to think in the same way, to go through the hoops, to be successful in today's system. They're not there to challenge, are we in the right field? Are we doing the right thing? And to think differently. And that for me is going to be a huge opportunity for businesses that wake up to the power of people who think differently. Absolutely. And a nice way to conclude your early years was an exchange you had when you were doing your MBA with the professor, because it was the same type of thing. It was where you challenged the status quo. Yeah, I, I mention it there as it's something that's stuck in my mind. I don't I wouldn't play up that I stood up in the lecture room and banged the table, but it was a... <laughs> Dead Poets Society, man. That's what I had. <laughs> no, there was no, there was, there was no really heroics there, but it, it was something that 
it just jarred with me. This is in 1992, uh, quite an age, did my MBA at a very, very young age. Um, but in 1992, this lecturer in finance was saying the only duty of a business leader is to maximize shareholder value. Um, and that's it. Nothing else matters. Nothing. The words were ringing in my ear for years. They still do. And frankly, that is still, uh, to many people's minds, um, absolutely true. But for me, it just seemed uh, so narrow a view of what business does or could do. It seemed just wrong to me. And that's why I've been challenging it ever since. Let's move on to that challenge because you took on that challenge not in any small means. You took it on in one of the most powerful and most profitable sectors in the world when you joined Accenture. Yeah, I didn't join Accenture to do what I ended up doing. And there's probably some lessons in there in terms of strategies and careers being much more emergent than planned, or certainly that when I've become successful and good at my job or contented, it's when I've let go of the reins to a certain extent and allowed um, intuition or whatever it was to, to take over. So I, I joined Accenture. It wasn't called that then. And 1996, it was Anderson Consulting in London, uh, and I joined it to make money. I joined it to to get a great salary. I doubled my salary. I got a fast car. I had a nice lifestyle. I was living, you know, uh, the jet set dream. And um, it wasn't until actually I my epiphany I talk about in the book came from just on an ordinary day reading an article in the Financial Times as it happened, and it was about um, the volunteering charity VSO uh, coming up with this new program to take business volunteers. They had lots of the doctors and the nurses and teachers and, and farmers coming and doing volunteering in developing countries. They really lacked accountants and managers and strategy consultants like me. And this just absolutely jumped out the page and, and, and grabbed me. And I thought I need to do something like this. And it's I, I called up the guy who was running the program. This is in 1999. And the, the book goes on about that encounter, that first encounter uh, with the chap and him dressing uh, dressing up in his best suit to meet the business guy and me dressing down into my NGO kind of backcloth and sandals and things. <laughs> Ironically, as we speak, I, I met this guy for the first time since then, yesterday in London. And, uh, you know, fabulous kind of uh, meeting with this person who that set me on this course for... Uh, a different career. And did you, did you meet him just by chance? No, we arranged to, to um, in a different thing. He had actually, that FT article as well, he got me online and um, the FT article that I'd read, I think this was almost before the days of things being on archives and digital archives. So he sent me a picture. He'd found it in the attic, and got in touch. 20 years later, 19 years later, it had the same effect on me. It kind of if I had hair in the, the back of my neck, which I don't, it would have been tingling. <laughs> nice, man. Well, it's a nice memory to have. I hope you get a, a framed copy. There's an interesting thing I'd like to come back to, Gib, because it's something that is an underlying thread in the book, which is you had a high standard of living, but a low quality of life. And this is something that we see a lot with people where they're working in big, high-powered jobs, but they suffer from workaholism and they become totally absorbed by their job. And it's not till much later that they wake up and smell the roses. Well, completely. And, and, it's, and it's not 
anything that's specific to Accenture or any even big consultancies, it's just so many people, I think, find themselves, particularly people at my age. I've just um, hit the half century last year. And and I see people who have spent 20 or 30 years, um, yes, flying business class in many cases. I wasn't because I was in the, the non-profit arm, if you will. But, you know, fancy hotels, fancy restaurants, um, jet set lifestyle, but working crazy, crazy hours, not seeing their family, not seeing their kids, um, getting a bit unfit, getting overweight, maybe not just a workaholism, but maybe other forms, you know, of addiction. And and then, you know, to wake up one day and find, you know, yourself post-rationalizing that uh, several decades of career, selling this or doing that, and wondering, I wish I'd maybe done something differently. And I think this is where the the dare I say millennials, and I know everyone uses these millennials for whatever they want to use them for, but um, I think there is definitely a shift in a generation coming up who don't want and don't aspire to have, in many cases, what their bosses one generation up want. They don't want the costs to them personally and professionally. They want something different and they really want meaning in their careers. Uh, Not all of them. Some will still be happy with the highest paycheck, but so many more want to be part of something bigger than themselves and feel that they are going to up out of bed in the morning using their skills, their knowledge, their the hours that they do work to do something very worthwhile. This is a key point as well throughout the book. It's one of the reasons we had William Dorizovitz on the show because we talked on that show about the fact that do you stop the problem as it is today or do you go back to the source? And the source starts with education. It starts with also society and the pressure that we put on children. And you glanced over the previous shows and and you spotted that one, but it'll probably make sense to you that given what you said, that's why we have on neuroscientists, we talk about sleep, we talk about energy maintenance and stuff like that on this show, because it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of minding yourself for this future that we're going through, because we're going through a period of huge change and huge transformation but also we need to educate people that it's okay to go through that it is and just with technology technology is fantastic and is offering lots of new opportunities and to innovate and do things differently but people are always online always connected always reacting and responding i think we're in almost a stage of semi-distraction permanent semi-distraction uh, and it's no surprise, I used to have my best ideas when I'd take two weeks, if I could take two weeks off on holiday. I tried to kind of cut off and break off at least once a year. And then, surprise, surprise, a great idea comes along. Why didn't I think of that before? And so there's a real wake-up call I want to give to co- companies and leaders in companies that if they want innovation, and everyone seems to be prizing innovation so much these days, um, it's inhibited. Uh, you're stopping people being creative. When they are creative, the immune system of the corporation may well kind of snuff them out with checks and balances and controls. And so we need to do something about this. The the attrition amongst entrepreneurs, which is the name of the title of the book, these social entrepreneurs or purpose-driven individuals and companies, is huge. So many of them leave. And if you had an Elon Musk in your midst or a Richard Branson, you wouldn't want them to be an attrition risk. You'd want to hang on to them. And that, I think, is the challenge for today's leaders. This really resonated. 
the very people who can change the course and the direction of the company are the ones who leave because they're just not welcome. And they're not welcome because of the metrics the company sets and the vision and mission of so many companies. Uh, completely. And that's why companies have been incredibly successful at growing enormously over the last couple of decades because they have these processes in place and checks and balance that enable them to scale in pursuit of one single metric, short-term shareholder return over everything else. And so anything that looks unlike that or is taking the company in a slightly different position is in danger. And I guess, I, I, I suppose it's worth for the listeners, I'm talking in the abstract about what I was doing. I should give you the quick synopsis. After coming back from my stint as a volunteer in Macedonia, this was just after the Kosovo crisis, I had um, well, I'd seen where my business skills could be used for purpose. I was on a 90-something percent salary reduction from my London job and had never been more motivated in my life. It was, it was this drug, this, this thing called purpose. I'd discovered it, or more likely, it had actually discovered me. And when I went back into the business, intending fully to go back up the, you know, the corporate hierarchy, pat myself in the back for having done some good, given back all these cliches, I couldn't do it. Um, I had been thinking, how could there be a business model around bringing affordable expertise in technology and consulting to nonprofits, to parts of the world where there's a great need for these skills, but there's traditionally least access, where pro bono doesn't go. And that's where the, the business model, this unusual business model, which is, was now called Accenture Development Partnerships, it wasn't called that in the beginning, but it was a business model based on a, a tripartite contribution. So this was what was different, I guess, about it. And this goes to the heart of the innovation that you're talking about in the show. Not rocket science, but it was just saying, well, if I was happy on 90% reduction, maybe people would give up half their salary. Maybe Accenture would give up profit on working with NGOs or working on development issues. And maybe these NGOs, rather than taking and expecting handouts and free consulting, maybe they would pay 10 to 20% of the market rates. And the economic model was to try and make that be break even. So I prefer to call us a not-for-loss group rather than the not-for-profit. So we were, we were trying to be cost-neutral to shareholders, but at the same time um, deliver these services in a scalable and sustainable way. And people at the time said, um, you know, you're nuts. You know, who's gonna, who in their right mind is going to give up half their salary? Nobody does that. Which NGO is going to give money to Accenture, a huge organization? Um, and, well, they may, given what happens later on, uh, that you, they may have been uh, right in saying I, I was a bit nuts. But the fact that there's 45,000 people at the moment on the waiting list, at the interest list, queuing up to half their salary within Accenture to do this kind of work, has to be an indicator of the level of interest in purpose and doing something differently. And the, and the business grew significantly over the first 10 years. You know, worked in 80 countries, provided hundreds of millions of dollars worth of services. So even the crazy things or being the, the person that looks crazy and appears crazy and appears the odd one out doesn't necessarily make you wrong. You might be the sheep, to use Derizovic's way. You might be the sheep that's not going off the cliff where everyone else actually is. There's a great saying that is when the brain has a new idea, the body treats it like a strange protein and rejects it. It really resonated when I was reading your book that the corporation also does that. And it's not, 
it's not necessarily the corporation's fault. This is the problem. The baked-in design is maximize shareholder value. So everybody is developed that way. They're trained that way. And then when you have an entrepreneur, I love the term you use, a corporate insurgent, who is going against the grain, they stand out a mile. And then they're almost bullied or isolated or even denounced and made look like they're strange or crazy or an outlier because they want them to look that way so everybody else doesn't actually follow them. I almost don't think it's even anything as intentional as that. I think it's almost just an unintentional consequence of what you've described, the system being set up in a different way, the policies and the rules being set up in a different way. And and the bullying you describe is, you know, it comes in many forms. It's, it's certainly not physical in any way. It, it may well be emotional or, or mental, but it's, it's, it's middle to senior management doing their job, doing following their annual objectives, uh, enforcing a policy or a rule or a check or a balance or whatever it is that makes perfect sense in isolation, which is no one could criticize you from doing your job. But if you take a step back and look at it in the round and, and, and what could be achieved, it's maybe the wrong thing to do. And it, that's what makes it very, very difficult. That's why so many entrepreneurs, I think, are either burning out or falling out uh, of, the, of the system. Uh, and that is a lost opportunity in terms of innovation, not just social innovation, but for my mind, there is a convergence between the social innovation and market value. Uh, and that is the future for businesses, I see it, innovating to solve complex social issues at scale. What you said there is so true. It's not that the corporation or anybody within it are out to get anybody. Like nobody wakes up in the morning and go, I'm going to get that Gib guy. Instead, yeah, some right. they're Never going. Know. <laughs> <laughs> right to. No, but, 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 but it's more like, I'm going to do my job and this is going against my job. So I'm doing it for myself. I'm not doing it against you. If you go back to what your underlying theme is, it's this idea that the goals have to change. The underlying fundamental architecture of business needs to change. It does, or there needs to be some way of, I don't know what the, to, I don't want to extend the metaphor too much, but if there is a, if there are antibodies and, a, and an immune system that snuffs out some of this entrepreneurship or innovation, there needs to be something like an um, antiretroviral equivalent, something that allows and provides the air cover and the protection for these things to bubble up and be scaled up uh, and that people don't get sacked for, you know, we, that's a great idea, but you're not following your annual objectives or something. Where, where can you give that latitude? So, and I, and the other point I would really stress in this, and I, and I talk about it a lot in the book, is that I'm not anti-profit. I'm not anti-businesses making money and being successful and maybe even paying people well. I'm actually saying that some of the biggest challenges in the world, how we feed and nourish the next billion people on the planet, educate these billion kids, provide access to energy, sanitation, you name it, these things that are traditionally, I would say, the territory of the NGOs and the territory of the UN in terms of their sustainable development goals are actually big untapped market opportunities for business. If we think about business in a different way, if we innovate to create the new business models to achieve that value. So there is a lot of value, commercial value on the table in solving these problems. Um, this is not a CSR or a philanthropic 
do-goody agenda. This is just about recalibration. Let's extend that a little bit because you talk about this, for example, that if you invested in children in India, for example, instead of it being a cost to the government, it could actually mean a massive uplift in society and GDP. Completely. And actually, uh, some of the fun thing about the book was partly uh, it's quite a different kind of book because it's set in the context of a businessman uh, in a psychiatric hospital wondering if he's gone nuts or not. So it's, it's the, as you know, the flashbacks between conversations in the ward and flashing back to different stages of life or career or activities and some of the funny things in business. It sounds like a very heavy thing. It hopefully isn't. It hopefully comes across as some of the light-hearted moments in, in business as you're trying to drive change bottom-up. But to your point, some of the ideas that I was writing about with colleagues in technical papers in the echo chamber of the development sector where you know two men and, or women and a dog would maybe read them, uh, and that might just be the executive summary. Some of the book was about reframing some of these ideas, partly out of frustration that maybe people weren't listening or weren't understanding them or getting them, but partly to reach a wider audience inside business and beyond business about how we could think about these problems in a different way. An example you're talking about is uh, around what, you know, what is the return on investment of educating a girl that's born tomorrow in India? Do they become a... Uh, heaven forbid, child uh, mortality statistic before the age of five. Far, far too many. Millions do. Or do they become a productive, happy, healthy economic citizen uh, contributing to India and beyond? And the fact that uh, India will provide a quarter of the global talent pool means that not just the government of India, but all of us, including global corporations, have a vested interest in making that latter story come true. And if you do the classic NPV, to use the jargon, the sort of return on investment, small investments in things like nutrition or to help the brain develop in the first uh, uh, couple of years of life, to get the kid into school, to stay in school, uh, to get into secondary school, not get married at 13, to have access to sanitary products, to um, have the right kind of technology and teacher training and school books, these are relatively small investments versus um, the return to society and the return potentially to companies. And, and, and the work that we did with Brookings put that number at $54. If you give me a dollar for the child born tomorrow, I'll give you $54 if they make it into the workplace. And India itself, as one country, is leaking about $100 billion a year, 5.5% of its GDP at the time we did the study in underdeveloping its talent. Now, if that was oil in Saudi Arabia, you'd do something about it. You wouldn't leak 5% of your oil. You would fix the pipelines. So we need to fix the talent pipeline. A nice segue here would be the education system, because this has become a focus for you as well, that if we can change that, we can make a huge dent on change in the world. Absolutely. And, and so I'm no expert in education, but I think it fundamentally, that's your other podcast, I would say, but just trying to say that corporations, given that now 70% of the largest economies, I'm told, in the world are global corporations, I don't believe we can stand idly by, particularly in a human capital organization like an Accenture, where there's four, over 400,000 people. Can we still expect these people to turn up in growing numbers as we continue to grow 
and have exactly the skills we need when we need them. I believe business needs to get more engaged in helping to develop the talent that it will need in the future. It can't just be left to taxpayers and government. I believe that every child has, as a human right, the right to a quality education funded for them, certainly up to further education. And one that's fit for purpose for the business world of today, one that's much more flexible. Right. So MBA courses are very, very good at really sort of drilling stuff into one half of the brain. But what about the, the creative left, left hand of the brain? What about bringing in, I don't know, art classes into your MBA? What about bringing in, um, you know, singing lessons or drumming lessons or stand-up comedy or all these things that are going to sort of tweak the creative muscles? And let's bring in, you know, maybe mini MBAs multiple times throughout the career to bring people the skills that they will need when they need them in their careers, rather than thinking, you know, you're going to come out at 24, 25, fully educated. Who knows what skills you'll need in 10 years' time? Yeah, and those organizations that invest in consistently skilling their people, because everything's changing at such a pace that we have to we have to continuously learn and it seems like in a way that the education system's built to get you a job then you get into a job and then this is why you have people that like some of the people you mentioned in the book acting real protective of their territory because they have they haven't got anywhere else to go so they protect their territory it's theirs and they don't want you coming in and changing things. To a certain extent, I'm, I'm sure that's true. And, and, and I would say that training and corporate training is part of it. But back to this theme of, to a certain extent, less is more. I, I think getting people in classroom environments and drilling them full of more and more information or new, more and more new skills only takes you so far. Uh, where is the space for people not just to, you know, be in accelerators, but to actually decelerate, to slow down, to cut off, and to think about not just about um, their job and their well-being, but think you know creatively about what they could do with their skills in the company that they're in. Um, and I think that would go a long way. There is a there is a real challenge around people actually, you know, just burning out so much. I think the official statistics uh, really underplay the actual problem based on on the the conversations I'm increasingly having. Yeah, because people are pretty much embarrassed by it because society makes them feel that way. And and also, society makes them feel like they're lacking all the time and they have to achieve more. They have to keep up with the Joneses type of approach to life rather than actually putting time into themselves, putting time into their family. And I, I actually believe this is why we're seeing this move towards mindfulness and the digital detox like you talk about in the book. One of the major reasons for writing the book was to address this taboo around mental health in the workplace and to stand up and be counted and try and break the taboo. I think, you know, LGBT, for example, has come on a long way in the last decade. I think mental health is back where it was 10 years ago. And I have no real idea. I feel quite lucky. I had a brief kind of episode, a, a manic episode triggered by a fever in India. Uh, and it was very real. You know, I, I did maybe go a bit nuts and I did end up in hospital. But there are people that suffer from this on an ongoing basis. So more attention, more resources needs to be paid to this. It's in everyone's interest. But the book is more about the mental health of the organization and the mental health of the um, the system in which we are all operating within. These things are not dislocated from one another. 
and flying kites to say, is it so crazy to imagine that business could do more, uh, that private investment, private entrepreneurship could deliver public goods, and that the change that we need in companies that we've talked about earlier on may not be driven top down. Uh, I don't believe that the captains of industry, with a few notable exceptions, we always talk about Paul Pullman, um, there are not enough Paul Pullman around. I think that more of the initiative may well come from the bottom up and individuals before they get a C-suite title or an SVP title, they can really drive change and be agents of change individually and collectively. And yeah, I'd love to get back to the, the corporation for a second because you talk about the journey and, and your journey was very much an entrepreneurial one where you think it's an easy A to B journey, but you're going down valleys and up mountains. And you have this great term you talk about, it's like snakes and ladders. Yeah, that, that's something, again, that comes up in the dialogue in the, in the hospital. I, I think careers, many careers are uh, like that. And um, you get so far and we had our successes and we would go up a few ladders and you think you're doing really well. And then you hit a, a, a dirty great snake and you, you, you come back, you have some setbacks. Ironically, I think it's some of the setbacks, actually, uh, some of the supposed failures that can sometimes be the biggest learning opportunities, the biggest opportunities for growth. You talk about some of the snakes you ran into, <laughs> excuse the pun, and these are hypothetical names. Frank, one of these guys who applied let's call it emotional pressure to you. And everybody experiences this. Every entrepreneur will experience a group or a certain individual who'll be the person outgunning for you or else is the person who's given that role by the organization. And, you know, every good uh, story, you know, with goodies and baddies and uh, you, you has to have its villains. And, um, yeah, Frank, the character, uh, not the real name, maybe not the real nationality, maybe not even the real gender, uh, in the book, it had to be disguised for legal reasons. But <laughs> I'd imagine, and people that have read the book, many people are coming forward saying, oh my goodness, I've got my Frank in my organization. Absolutely. Most companies will have these individuals, again, who have risen uh, to fairly senior positions by being, I would say, bullies, by, by driving things hard, going after the numbers, doing their job, not suffering fools gladly, um, being tough, being a bit aggressive, this kind of alpha male stuff. And I don't think they will even be aware of the you know, emotional burden it can be putting on people. Um, often they will have reputations internally as being bullies and not good to work for. But the, the collateral damage of these things uh, is quite significant. And I hope that with another generation coming through, these people will be gradually retiring or leaving and going on to the golf course sooner rather than later. In sport, if you have a prima donna, you don't have a good team. When you get rid of the prima donnas and you get rid of entitlement and you get rid of bullies, the, the team flourishes. Because if everybody's at the same level with their education or skill set, the only difference is culture or mission or North Star within a company. How do you see that evolving in the future? You know, if a football team was living and, and playing in fear um, of a aggressive manager, let's say, in this kind of context, uh, or one prima donna, no, you won't get all the, the capabilities and the competencies coming, coming out. Um, the, the, getting rallied around a theme, I, I certainly saw it on a kind of more micro level in the bit of Accenture that I was running this corporate social enterprise. Uh, 
we had our own vision, which was, I guess, a bit different from the, the company's vision. Uh, we were trying to bring business expertise to to these organizations in parts of the world that had great need. And it was a purpose-driven agenda. That was our North Star. It wasn't profit. There was a business case for doing it. It was around retention and and, and recruitment differentiation and, and, and building relationships with different kinds of organization. It wasn't out of the goodness of our hearts, but it was like a magnet for talent. The way that people were attracted, the best performers were attracted towards this. I didn't need to build a team. It built itself around about this purpose thing. And I could select and cherry pick these best people. So if you take that back to your question and, and, and the overall corporate vision, I just hope that the companies that genuinely think about what they are actually, what, the, what is the reason for them existing? Is it to employ some, po- some people, make some widgets and, and delight Wall Street? Or is it to actually do something worthwhile in society, whatever that happens to be? The ones that get that right will actually win the game when it comes to talent. And Gabe, I'd love to share the brilliant analogy you come up with, which is imagine Tesla was running the UN, Elon Musk, how he would treat that approach or that challenge. <laughs> yeah, again, these late night conversations in a psychiatric hospital would go all over the, all over the place. And it was, I had a lot of fun throwing out some of these ideas. How would Elon Musk run the UN if he was secretary general? You know, or even spin it the other way. How would the UN build a Tesla? And I have a lot of sympathy for the UN. I'm not here to 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 criticise them. They do great work in many ways, but it's an organisation was certainly designed for something of a different time. And and the idea of working in silos, where there's you know uh, UN organisations working in a silo around education, quite separate from those working on health, quite separate from those working on sanitation or energy for me we need to think systems approach and the tesla metaphor is you know you couldn't elon musk couldn't sort of have a team working only on the wheels or only on the batteries or only on design and not speaking to the other bits you would have a bizarre looking car at the end of it so somehow we need to move from silos to systems to integrated approaches and to think about again back to that indian child analogy that way is an, a systems approach towards putting the end result at the heart of it and then working towards what do you need? What, how will you fund and bring these needs to deliver the well-educated, healthy Indian girl at 20 years old? Not we're going to have a project in health. Not we're going to train 50,000 teachers. Not we're going to put in X number of computers. It needs to be a systems approach, not supply-driven, but market-driven. To sum it up, Gib, if this... And you talk about a great elevator pitch that was actually in an elevator <laughs> that happens in the book, which is great. But if this is an elevator elevator pitch to the world, to the world of business, what is your message to them? <laughs> How many floors do I have? <laughs> <laughs> it's a slow elevator. It's a slow elevator. Well, I'll be really quick. It, it is that business really has the opportunity to, to change the world. I firmly believe that but it will not be with business as usual. We do need to change the business world. And my message would be that it is possible for people at all levels of the organization, uh, lower down uh, especially, but also higher up, can come together to rethink uh, what the business's role is in the world, who it's working for and how. Brilliant, Gib. And and then 
for the entrepreneur, for the, as you call them, the corporate insurgent or the maverick or the change maker, what messages of support can you give those people? The first message would be you are not alone. Uh, and I can tell you it, it can be a very, very lonely place, especially back in, I would say, 2001, 2002. This was before even you know, corporate responsibility came and went uh, and, and you know, quite a different business context. I think the wind is now on your back. It can be lonely, but there are other people like you. There are other networks that are actually almost like your your Alcoholics Anonymous for change makers or misfits or people that feel the odd ones out in corporates. I've been heavily involved in um, the League of Entrepreneurs. There's a, a Maggie Dupre who has been uh, at the forefront of driving a movement uh, around the world, which is different chapters in different parts of the world. So check them out online. There's a similar organization called the Circle of Young Entrepreneurs. They're doing similar things. There are training courses. Uh, the Entrepreneur Lab is a fantastic way of getting people exposed to this kind of, of thinking. So check out these things online. The peer-to-peer -peer stuff is very, very powerful when these groups of people get together and discover, actually, I may be the odd one out in my organization, but frankly, I'm not alone. There are lots of other people just as crazy as I am. Or else everybody else is crazy. That's what I always say. I'll give links to all those on the show, so I'll link to them on the show notes. There's a brilliant, brilliant quote that I hadn't heard that you leave us with in the book by Rollo May. I'd love if you shared that with us. Yeah, and, and just to say, I'd love people to read the book, obviously, and, and, and have fun reading the book. The proceeds, if there are any from the book, will be going into the movement, into social innovation in general and corporate. So I'm hoping these networks will benefit in some small way. And just then to finish up with the quote that I have at the end of the book, it's by someone called Rollo May, who I hadn't heard of before. He's a, an American existential psychologist, whatever that is. But his quote is pretty good, I think, for this. The opposite of courage in our society is not cowardice. It's conformity. Beautiful. Well, you're certainly someone... Gib, who did not conform and in fact created a movement. And I hope this movement grows. I hope it's a snowball effect. Where can people find out more about you and your work? So yeah, I'd love for people to, to get in touch, share their, their thoughts and ideas. I can be reached at gibbulloch.com and Twitter at gibbulloch. Changemaker, insurgent and entrepreneur, consultant, writer and speaker on business, society and self, and the founder of Accenture Development Partnerships, Gib Bullock. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show, Aidan.